There are things in all of our lives that we cherish and we want to protect. In fact, uh, the more we cherish something, the more intense we are at uh, protecting those things. Just uh, a little while back, I was in Jacksonville helping a friend of mine. Uh, he kind of lives in kind of a sketchy area of Jacksonville, just to be honest with you. And uh, I pulled in there, pulled my truck in, had a ladder in the back uh, of the truck and had taken it out and put it on the side of the truck. And then went to the back of the house where my buddy was and went back there. We were talking about how we were going to fix it and what we were going to do. And, and uh, I was only back there for a few moments, came back to the truck. And to my surprise, but probably not yours at this point, uh, there was no ladder there. And so I figured one of two things had happened, either number one, one, this was evidence of spontaneous generation, that is that this ladder sprouted legs and ran off by itself, or somebody in broad daylight with us just a few feet away came and had the audacity to be able to come and pick our ladder up and steal it. Well, it was, of the two, it was the ladder. <laughs> um, just, I didn't even plan that, that literally just came to me, that was really funny, and so... Uh, it was, it was the latter. And so I was a little, how do you say that in the first service? That was so good. How did I think of that? And, um, and, and, and I, was, I was a little bit put out at first. I mean, I was literally sitting there going, how can somebody be so brash to be able to do this? And, and why would they take my ladder? How dare them? And so I was angry like you would be, but all of a sudden I began to settle down and realize it's not the end of the life. It's a, it's a ladder. I like my ladder. I don't love my ladder. And plus I've got several just like it back at home. It's replaceable. Now, that response, I think, was appropriate to what had happened to me and what I had lost, but it probably wouldn't be an appropriate response if it was my child that somebody had taken. If I had actually come and brought my child into that environment, into that sketchy neighborhood, and, and, and taken him out of the truck and put him next to um, the, the truck and walked to the back and came back and realized that somebody had taken the child, I wouldn't sit back and go, who had the audacity to take my perfectly good child? Why would they take them away? I can't, in, in broad daylight, they just took my child. Well, I probably wouldn't calm down like I did with the ladder. I probably wouldn't sit back and go, well, you know, it's okay because I have five, just, I have five of them just like them at home. <laughs> They're replaceable. The reason I wouldn't respond this way is because I cherish my children and they, for me, are irreplaceable, unlike a ladder. Well, here in the book of Galatians, Paul is coming out swinging. He is fiercely defending the gospel against a group of false teachers who have come up against him and are trying to hijack the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is they're attacking him and attacking his gospel by, by basically in chapter 1 by questioning his credentials as an apostle and questioning the content of the gospel message that he has been preaching and with every accusation, he just keeps coming back at them. Why? Because they're attacking the gospel that he cherished, and he knows that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is, is absolutely irreplaceable. If you add or subtract to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you lose the saving gospel of Jesus Christ altogether. So he is defending it with great passion and vigor. And so now there's going to be another accusation made by these false teachers in chapter 2. Now they're going to come and say, we know this is another reason why your gospel is false. It's because it doesn't match up with the gospel that was preached by the original 12 apostles, by the original 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And what Paul does in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 is he debunks all of that. He argues against all of it. He basically says, no, 
I'm going to tell you that it was one in the same, and here's why, that I am actually unified with those 12 apostles, and he gives three ways in which they were unified. Now, what I'm going to do is we don't have time to go through all three today, so I'm going to give you two of them, and then we're going to finish up with this section next week by giving you the third. But there's two of them this morning we want to look at. First of all, they were unified how? They were unified, first of all, in message. They were unified in message. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. The Bible says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed amongst the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, the 14 years that Paul mentions here most likely is the span of time between his first visit in Jerusalem and the one that he's referring to here in in the second chapter, in this particular passage. Now, uh, different scholars kind of disagree about all the timing of all this, but if it is marking that period of time, then the first time that he had visited Jerusalem was immediately after the three years that he had spent in the wilderness with Jesus. This is when Jesus himself was showing up and teaching him the gospel and theology and the interpretation of the Bible. Well, immediately after that, and Paul refers to this here in, Philippi, or in, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 1, that immediately after he left the desert, he ended up going to Jerusalem. And when he was in Jerusalem, he actually, this is for 15 days, he met Peter and James there, the apostles. Now, 15 or 14 years has gone by. He's gone out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And now he's returning once again to speak to the same, uh, to the same apostles in Jerusalem. Now, here's kind of what was happening during that time. It actually occurs immediately after Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. When they're done, had traveled and went to all those Gentile cities, they then go back to Antioch. When they're in Antioch, they begin to explain to all of these Jewish believers the miracle that God had performed in every place, including the salvation of the Gentile world. Well, half of the church in Antioch began to rejoice that God was so gracious that he would even extend salvation to the Gentiles, but the other half of the congregation began to complain and thought to themselves, this is impossible. There's no way for God to have saved these Gentiles without them first becoming Jewish. In order for them to be saved, they have to be circumcised. They have to be able to follow the law. Well, Paul and Barnabas begin to argue against this. There's a rift within the church there at Antioch. And so the leaders, the elders of the church decide this is what needs to happen. This is no open-handed issue. This is a closed-handed issue, and this issue might rip the very church apart. You need to go over to Jerusalem and talk about this and deal with this in Jerusalem. In fact, we read about this in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, it says that some of the brethren, meaning the pastors there at Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So when you read Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, I believe that this is one and the same, that Paul is talking here in chapter 2 of that particular time in church history. And so what they do is, is he goes because he's being sent by the church, but Paul is sure to let them know it's not just because the church said that he should go, but because he was strictly commanded by God to go. He says, because of a revelation. He goes, hey, look, they encouraged me to go, but I really went because God was in this thing. 
I think he adds this, this, little, this little phrase to let them know that God, to assure the Galatians that God was all over this meeting between he and these other apostles. And not only that, that he was indeed an apostle of Jesus Christ because he was still receiving direct special revelation from God. So we would put them at ease and also affirm to him that he had that same apostolic authority. But there was something else that brought him there. It wasn't just that the church wanted him to go. It wasn't just that God had commanded him to go, even though that was enough. He desperately wanted to go personally. He had a personal reason for going. And he says here that he went in order to, he set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Let me just say this quickly. Those who seemed influential, he's talking about the apostles, specifically the big three, Peter, James, and John. He's using this, and we'll see this unpacked more next week. He's using that because the false teachers, that was their name for the 12 apostles. They were kind of pulling one of these things. Well, yeah, Paul, you might be an apostle, but there are more influential apostles, and those are the 12 disciples. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to use the same terminology here kind of to poke the bear, kind of get at them, to be able to refer to the same people. So he says he went to them. He went to these disciples before them, and he set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. He goes, I've been preaching the gospel to the Gentile world for 14 years. I want to make sure that it's not a waste. Now, When we read that, it's easy to begin to think that perhaps Paul is beginning to question the gospel that he's been preaching. But that's not the case here. Paul's not wondering. He's not not having buyer's remorse. or He's not sitting back going, hey, maybe all this time I was saying the wrong thing. No, Paul knows what the gospel is. He knows what the gospel is because his life had been radically changed by that gospel. He had seen a a, a numerous group of Gentiles' lives be radically changed because of the gospel. And he had been taught it by Jesus Christ himself. He had no problem with knowing, no, no lack of confidence that the gospel that he was preaching was true. Then how do we explain this? He's not concerned with his ministry and whether it's right. He's concerned with the fruitfulness of his ministry. Here's why. Every time he goes to one of these cities and he begins to work hard to be share the gospel and plant seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, every time he leaves, immediately false teachers enter in and they begin to dig up everything that Paul had planted. They begin to confuse them. He leaves and they have freedom. They begin to teach him and as they begin to teach there, they all of a sudden begin to lose their joy and are confused on whether Paul had shared with them the true gospel of Jesus Christ and actually begin to wonder were they truly born again or not. And so Paul comes to them, and here's what he's saying. He comes to them, he says, listen, you guys are leaders of the church, you're the apostles, we need to make sure, you need to make an official statement. Are you about the same gospel that I'm preaching or not? If you're about the same gospel, then you need to make an official statement against these false teachers so that when people come to them, they know they're false teachers and they know that you and I are on the same page. In essence, what he's saying is this, he's saying, hey guys, I've been preaching this gospel for 14, 17 years. It's changed my life. It's changed the life of a myriad of other people. Jesus Christ gave this to me. I need to know, guys, is this your gospel? And they answer him. The answer comes in verse 3. Look at it. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. You're like, well, that's a funny answer. 
How are we to explain that? A simple yes or no would be great, but uh, we're talking about a guy not being forced to be circumcised. What does that mean? Well, understand that in this group, you've got, you've got, the, three, you've got the three big apostles, right? All Jewish people. Uh, then you, in turn, you've got Paul, who has a ministry. He's Jewish, but yet he has a ministry to the Gentile people. And then you have this man by the name of Titus. Of course, Barnabas is with him. He's also Jewish. But then you have Titus as well, and he's coming along with Paul. Remember that the disciples spent the majority of their ministry in Jerusalem which means the majority of their ministry was two Jewish people trying to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. They saw very few Gentile believers. So what Paul decides to do is he wants to show the evidence that his gospel is true by bringing a Gentile life that had been radically changed by it. So when he comes before the man, he says, hey, listen, here's my gospel I'm laying out for you, but here's exhibit A. Here's the evidence that this gospel is true, that this is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So Titus comes before them. He goes, hey, how y'all doing? Just want to let you know I like pork and bacon and those things. I hope that doesn't offend too much. And he begins to get up and he begins to share with them about how his life had been radically changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He was trying to earn his own salvation, how he was trying to be good before God, and he was trying to do these things. Then he heard the gospel preached by Paul and by Barnabas, and he came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and how he placed his faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, and he was saved. And here here are the disciples looking at this guy, and they know that he's been changed, and they can sense that the Holy Spirit is all in this man. And so you know what they do? They sit there and go, nothing else is needed. You're born again. You're a believer just like us. God saved you in the same way that he saved us, being Jewish or not Jewish. And so they come together, and so all these men, even though they're completely different, three Jewish apostles of Jesus Christ ministering to Jewish people, Paul, who is a Jew, but he has a ministry to the Gentiles, and then you have this guy by the name of Titus who is neither Jewish, uh, but he has been now transformed uh, by the gospel, and now he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And you have this whole diversity First group together, and yet they are completely unified with what? The gospel. The same gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple years ago, or actually sometime back, there was a movement called the Church Growth Movement. Anybody remember this? Um, and a lot of people kind of like, oh, it was bad. Some people say it was good. I think it was both bad and good. I think the motivation was correct. People just sat around and said, man, we're, we're tired of not seeing people come to faith in Christ. We want to see people saved. We want to see people change. So the motivation was correct problem with some of that, it was probably far too more pragmatic than it was theological, begin to kind of lose its way. Uh, but there were some good things that came out of it. One of those things, both good and bad, was something called contextualization. And basically what people were saying is simply this. It's simply, look, if, if you want to reach a certain group of people, then you need to know that group of people. You need to know who they are, what their backgrounds are, what their worldview is, what they like, what they don't like, what they're culturally sensitive to, what they're not culturally sensitive to, what what kind of cars they, they drive, what kind of money that they end up making. And then the idea is you learn as much as you can about that particular individual, and then what you want to do is house or, 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 or deliver the gospel in the clearest possible way for those people so that there's no stumbling blocks in it except for the gospel message itself. And so you're not changing the gospel, okay? You're just changing ways that you present the gospel based on whatever culture you're trying to share this with. Now, this isn't wrong. By the way, all of our missionaries do this. 
When they go to India, they have to learn as much about how Indians think as they possibly can so that they can share the gospel in the clearest way that they can. In fact, and let me say this, and some might get kind of disgruntled with this, churches that don't continually try to contextualize the gospel as the culture in which they live begins to change are usually churches that end up dying out. They, they hold to and they believe that this is, this is the only way to do it. We can't do it any other way. We're not going to change, and that's fine because the culture is changing around them and their taste and their ways and the way that they think, and then they forget that that gospel or the way that they're presenting the gospel doesn't make sense to that group. Now, remember, again, the gospel doesn't change, but the way that you may communicate it and to be able to deliver it might be different based on the people that you're trying to share it with. So it can be a good thing. But here's what was negative about it. It was so focused and beelined about specific type of people that they wanted to reach. The problem was, after a period of time, is they begin to notice that all of these churches, literally everybody in a given church looked exactly the same. They looked the same. They had the same skin color. They were from the same places. They liked the same things. And so what was happening, the churches stopped growing because people who didn't look like that or act like that or have the same education that they did didn't feel welcome because when they showed up at the church, what would happen is they would say, the only reason this church is together is because their unity is based on their similarities. It's like, a, it's like, a, you, it's like walking into a church of zebras, they're exactly alike. You can't tell one apart from the other. When one begins and one ends, they're all zebras. And so people would begin to pull away from that. And listen, I'm not interested at all in that kind of church, are you? I'm not interested at all for us to be able to sit there and go, hey, man, well, we all like the Gators. Well, we all like the Seminoles. We all like, right? How are we going to make fun of each other, right, if that happens? How are we going to mock each other when each other's team loses? No, the, the key there is, 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 is it not about, that's not what unifies us. We come together not even because we like the same music or you like the same dress or because we, 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 we live in the same areas. We're unified in one thing. What is it? That we hold to and believe in the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, some of you, some of you are going to be, the Jaguar game's coming, right? Some of you are get, all getting excited. I feel so bad for you. But you, you get so excited. Maybe this year is going to be different, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to start uh, skipping church in order to be able to get to the Jaguar game. Oh, he did not go there. Oh, yes, I did. And, uh, and um, uh, it's not legalism. We have an earlier service, 9 o'clock, that you can come to. We'd love to have you before you go. You make it in plenty of time. <gasps> anyway, and so when you go, it's been a long time since I've been there, but I want you to do me a favor. When you go in, and this will actually be therapeutic, when things are just a disaster on the field, uh, do this. Just stop looking at what's going on in the field and just begin to look around you. Just look at the people in that stadium. Uh, look around, and what you're going to find is you are going to find professionals. You're going to find blue-collared folks. You're going to find rednecks. Don't be offended. You're going to find city slickers. You're going to find rich people, people who want to be rich, and people who are clearly not rich. You're going to find Caucasians and African Americans and Hispanic and Asian peoples. It is literally a diverse kaleidoscope of people. And when you look at them, you think to yourself, these folks have nothing in common. There's nothing similar with them at all. In fact, they draw, they live in different parts of towns. They don't go to the same school. They don't work at the same places. They've got none of these things. But yet, they're able to come together on that day and be perfectly unified. 
Outside, completely different, no unity. Even the world says that they shouldn't be together. But when they get in the midst of that, all of that falls to the side and they're unified. They begin to work together. What happens? They, they begin to yell at the refs together. They begin to cheer together. They begin to c- c- uh, complain about the play calling together. They moan together that this is yet another, the old Jaguar team again, right? Are you hearing me? They do all of these things, but the similarities aren't bringing them together. But did you notice the differences aren't drawing them apart? Similarities didn't bring them together. Differences don't, don't draw them apart. Why? Because they have one thing in common, a love for a debunked football team, <laughs> right? But when you and I come together, Listen, if, if we base our unity based on styles of music and colors of carpets and, and what time we should meet and what time we shouldn't meet and, and, and different issues of taste and everything, that will only last as long and go as wide as we agree on those little external things. But those things are not ultimately what binds us together. What, this is what I would love. I would love for a guest to come into Mercy Hill And I would love for them to be able to come in and go, I would love one day just say, hey, I want a meeting with you. That always makes me nervous, by the way. But hey, I want to meet with you. Okay, that's great. That's me. And they come to me and they go, I don't get it. I don't get this church. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why? He goes, man, I met you a bunch of people. Y'all got nothing in common. I mean, you got business owners and you've got folks that I don't know if they're making minimum wage or not. You've got folks that are educated, folks that are like, I can't spell educated. I mean, you've got all different types of people within this church. I go, ah, I understand your confusion. But, but, but who did you meet with? And he says, well, I met this person, that person. I go, oh, yeah, oh, that's right, John. You know, you know John. Well, did, he, did, did you hear John's story? He goes, well, no, I didn't hear John's story. Well, yeah, all those things are true. He's a business owner. He's all these other kinds of things. He goes, but his story is that he was trying to earn his own salvation. He was trying to be right before God. In fact, he thought that he was right before God because he was a good man. He says, but you know what ended up happening? One day, somebody shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and he realized that he had fallen short of the glory of God, and he couldn't do it on his own. But somebody told him that God loved him enough to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for him. And if he would repent and place his faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he would be born again. And that message has radically changed his life. And you're like, and and the man sits there and goes, okay, that's his story, but what about the other lady's story? And I would say, it's the same story. And what about this person? Same story. What unites us is that all of us are united through the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're already halfway done. Amen? Amen. Number one, unified in our message. Number two, unified in freedom. Look at verse four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring in us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul now is describing how false teachers, how these false teachers actually infiltrated the church. Now understand, this is true for every generation, not just with the church of Galatia. False teachers don't show up and go, hey, I disagree with everything you say. I'm here to disrupt everything that you're doing. Uh, I don't think you're right, so I'm going to try to lead you astray. They don't have little signs, as Paul says, that just sit there and say, hey, I'm Joe the spy. They don't come that way. 
What do they do? They slip in to the congregation. They want to go unnoticed. They, all, all, all the new guests here are like getting nervous. They're like, dude, I'm not a spy, bro. Don't look at me. Um, they, but, they, but they slip in. They, they, they don't want to draw any attention to who they are or the real purpose of why they're ultimately there. Uh, they, they just come and they sit there and say, hey, we just want to get in. We want people to ultimately trust us. And that by the time that they figure out who we are and what we're doing, the damage is ultimately already caused within the congregation. That was true then and it's true now. So I don't know if I've, I, I, I didn't plan this earlier in the week really, but, but, but where I've come to is this. I've, uh, it's come to make me realize I may never have this opportunity before. So I want to address any false teachers that we may have here. Uh, this is odd, but I don't know any other opportunity I'll ever get to do it, so it's in the text, so let me do it. If you've snuck in and slithered into the church and you have some kind of crazy notion that you're going to come in and that we're fixed and th- that we're broken and you're going to fix our theology, that is our gospel, by adding to it, we don't need your help. And, and I want to let you know, as one of the under-shepherds, not the only one, we've got several, the under-shepherds of the church, and I speak on behalf of all the, the under-shepherds of the church and leaders in the church, we will find you, we will expose you, and we will show you the door without apology because we do not want you messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, oh, that, Half a clap is no clap, amen? So, but, but here's what's going to happen. See, right now, I can't wait until you guys go out in the foyer. Without me saying this, here's what you got, we would do. Everyone would go out and go, what in the world is going on in that church? And, and some of you would be like, hey, man, I'm just praying for you. I, you know, who are these false teachers? Because there's this guy in my small group. I kind of suspicious he might be the one. And the truth is, no, I, I, I don't know of any. I don't know of any. But here's what I'm thinking. If they could infiltrate, infiltrate and really mess up the doctrine and steal the joy of the people within a church that Paul had preached, certainly they can infiltrate here at Mercy Hill, right? So this is what they do. This is how they get in. What do they do when they get in? That's really the key of this section. What they do when they get in is they're seeking to spy out their freedoms. Note this, spy out their freedoms to bring them into slavery. So they're free, now they're trying to bring them back to slavery once again. And so what I want to do is I thought that it would be important for me to describe what freedom do people have? What freedom did the Galatians have when they acquired or placed their faith in the gospel that Paul was preaching? That is, that a person is saved by grace or faith alone. If you've done that, what freedoms do you and I share in? Let me give you four of them very quickly. See, you thought there's only two points. (laughs) So let me give them to you as quickly as I possibly can. Number one, first, they were free from the penalty of sin. I want you to hear this. All men, women, and children are born under the penalty of sin. They are born under the curse of sin. But not just because we were born into it, because you and I have brought it upon ourselves because we have willfully disobeyed God. God said no, and we did. He said don't, and we, or said don't, and we did. He said do, and we didn't. And so the Bible says that the consequence of this disobedience towards God is an eternal death and a literal hell. That's the consequence of that. And no person escapes that on their own. And so, so, so the good news is of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is when we are, repent and believe and place our faith completely on the completed work of Jesus Christ, that penalty is completely and absolutely and eternally resolved. It just goes away. Somebody says, well, how does it go away? 
Well, it, it goes away, be, not, not because he just he put, puts the law away, he dissolves the law. It's not because he just replaces the law with something else. He puts it away by fulfilling the law. And he fulfills it in two ways. First of all, he fulfills it by meeting the high standard of the law, and that is that the Bible says that we must be perfect. And you know what? You and I, none of us perfect, all have fallen, all have shown the glory of God, but he meets it. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way and yet sinned not. So he fulfills the law by being perfectly obedient to every single bit of it. The other way he fulfills the law is that he pays and makes the payment for those that have ultimately fallen, for those who have broken the law. How did he do that? He did it on the cross of Christ. So when you and I are saved, it's a great exchange. He says, I want to come to you, but if you come to me, you have to give me all your sin. When you give me all your sin, I'm going to give you all of my righteousness. And not only are you going to be made right before my Father because he's going to see you as I see you, but every bit of fear of yours will dissolve away because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. When I was a little kid, I was so fearful of hell. I went to a church that, man, they, they had no problem telling me the bad news that I had fallen, that I had sinned, that, that there was a fiery hell, which there is, it's eternal. Uh, you will go, there's the consequence. But what, what happened to me was not only the, lit, the literal aspect of hell, but what made me so fearful is I realized that I deserved every bit of it. Even as a little child, I knew that I deserved it. And I didn't know any way out. So when my father came to me and he began to share the gospel and said, hey, listen, Jesus Christ has come to die for you to pay for your penalty one for all. You don't have to lose sleep at night. You can sleep knowing that no matter what happens, when you die, listen, church, when you die, you're not going to be in soul sleep for generations. You're not going to go into some in-between place of purgatory. You're going to close your eyes, and the very worst thing that's going to happen to you is when, at the moment that you open them, you're going to see the face of your Savior and be in eternal bliss for eternity. That is the worst thing that will happen for you. What is there to fear? That's freedom. But when you sit back and when somebody comes and they begin to say, hey, listen, it's not just faith in Christ and the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's Christ plus something else you have to do. You know what? You don't have that freedom anymore. Because instead of being at peace and being at free from that fear, you know what you do? You walk away. You walk around wondering, is, am I going to be good or am I not going to be good enough? There, there, there's, no, there, there's no hope in that. There was a, a church that I knew when I was over in McClinney. One of the things that they would teach their people, and I was trying to help their young people, going, guys, this isn't true at all. They believed that unless you, you may have heard somebody say this before, that unless you confess every sin up to date before you die, that you're not born again. In other words, if you were to die without confessing your sin that you committed last night, that you would die and go to hell. That is completely inconsistent with the grace and the mercy of God. First of all, all of your sins and my sins were in the future when Jesus Christ died on that cross. When he said, it's finished, and he forgave you and I, and he redeemed us way back then, guess what? All of our sins were future. And so what happens is you, there's no freedom when somebody begins to distort the gospel. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this. If you're in him, you're free from any fear about any condemnation and any, and any judgment of God in the future. What a wonderful freedom. Second thing that we see here is not only is it the freedom of the, we're free from the penalty of sin. Number two, we're free from the bondage of sin. Now, only the true believers in Jesus Christ really understand this point. Because the truth is, is when we were lost, we couldn't help but to live a life of sin. 
That doesn't mean that a person falls and gives in to every imaginable sinful compulsion that comes their way. It just simply means that everything about their life is geared in a direction of disobedience towards God. When God saves you, he changes the whole trajectory of your life. No longer are you running from God and going against God. Now you are running towards him and for him and in the direction of God. Are you perfect? No, not even close. In fact, you will sin it many times and in many ways more than you ever count. But here is the hope in all of this. The hope for the true believer is when God gave us and saved us, he gave us a new heart. Would you agree? Gave us a new heart. Now, I hate what I used to love. I love what I now hate. I want to follow God. I hate my sin. I don't want to have anything to be able to do with these things. And so what ultimately happens in the midst of all this? He gives us a heart, but he also gives us a spirit that now it's not just that I want to do what is right and to pleasing to God. He gives the spirit and his power to allow me now to be able to obey and to please God through what it is and how I'm living out my life towards him. So there's the distinction between there, and he breaks that bondage. And remember these false teachers. When they come in with a false gospel, and they're saying that you also, it's not only grace, but you must also work. What they're saying is Christ dying for you did not break you from the bonds of sin. He says you've got to break yourself from those bonds of sin. And what happens is they go from freedom back into slavery once again. Let me give you a third thing here. Third, they were free from man's legalism. From man's legalism. Now, remember, when they're talking about the law, they're primarily talking about the law of Moses, the Torah, first five books of the law. But they're also referring, at least for many Jews, they were talking about also these man-made Jewish laws. Do you remember, uh, I talked a couple weeks ago about one of those laws was how to spit correctly. You could spit one way and it would be wrong. You spit another way and it's okay. And some of you are like, man, spitting's always wrong. And, uh, and so here, let me give you another example. You take Leviticus chapter 15. And God tells the people that you need to wash your hands in Leviticus chapter 15. And he tells all the different times when they were supposed to wash their hands. Like, if you touch a dead body, you ought to wash your hands. Amen? Probably a good thing. Now, there's two things that go on with this. One is just a practical side. That is, if somebody dies from a disease and their, and their corpse is there, probably a good thing that before you eat, after you touch them, you probably wash them, wash your hands so that you don't catch it. So it was protecting them in a practical way. But even more so, all of these cleansing ceremonies were for the purpose to constantly remind the people that they were unclean, to constantly let them know that they need to be cleansed before God. And so here's what some of these religious leaders would do. They would take the commands of God in Leviticus chapter 15, and they would say, hey, you got to cleanse, but now we need to specify exactly how we need to cleanse. And so then they would begin to create all kinds of laws. They say, hey, look, you can't just take your hands and just stick them in some basin somewhere. You've got to be able to hold your hands up like this and have water poured from your fingertips down your wrists and down your elbows and let it just drip off. But then you have the problem. You've got a little bit of dirty something collecting down there. So then you have to turn this way. And now you need to be able to pour from the elbows down to the fingers. And if you do that, then you'll truly be clean. And then not only are you supposed to clean your hands before you eat, then somebody came up with the idea that you need to be able to cleanse your hands or clean your hands before every single part of the meal. So at the, at the salad, then at the meal, then at the dessert, you should constantly be going through these particular situations in order to be clean before God. And this shows the problem with legalists. Legalists always focus on the external actions rather than the inward realities. 
They just figure if they could just keep A, B, and C, then they're right with God without understanding they can keep A, B, and C and be lost as a dog in high weeds. They don't understand that. And so, well, so a lot of times you say, well, what does that have to do with us? Certainly people wouldn't uh, do that or hold us to that um, uh, today. But, but the truth is, we do. We've got our own little legalistic things that we do. I grew up in a church where, well, let me say the principle. The principle that we read in the Word of God in the book of Ephesians is the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Let's just take that as an example. And what that basically means is, you know what? The Christian life was never let for, meant for you and I to live in isolation. That, that we're to live in a body of Christ, body of believers. Would you amen this for a second, all right? To be together, to encourage each other, to love each other, to, to hold each other accountable, to learn the word of God, to serve one another, to help each other in the midst of crisis. These are all things that the body is supposed to do. You can't do any of that and be out by yourself. So do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as some do. Well, the church that I, one of the churches I grew up in, they decided that they were going to define this. And defining this is you must be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night visitation, and Wednesday night church, and any other time that something's going on in the church. If a janitor comes in and accidentally opens the door, you better be there. That's kind of the attitude. And so, so what happens is, is this, is they look at that, and everybody begins to put pressure on each other. Oh, he wasn't here Sunday night. Must be backslidden. Pray for our brother. Because only true Christians come on Sunday night and Wednesday night. Now, look, would you agree that if a person is falling out of a local church and not being a part of it, that there is probably a sign of some spiritual issues and problems? Yeah. Because what are they not doing? They're, 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 not, they're, they're not coming and being a part of the body. They're forsaking the gathering of the body. But when you begin to take these things and say, this is exactly, here's the absolute application to this text and to this law, and you hold people and you take those, that application and you raise it to the same level as God's law itself, that's when we begin to tear each other down. And so here's a danger about kind of getting rid and ridding ourselves of, of all of these like kind of like uh, traditions. Here's the problem with it is we usually uh, 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 take on new traditions that take its place. Let me give you kind of an example. A friend of mine basically told me this. He said one time, he goes, it's just a testimony. I got his permission to be able to say this. not going to give him his name, John. And so, um, so he basically said, he goes, man, I came from one of those legalistic churches, bro. He goes, I just, I remember them yelling at me all the time saying, if I didn't wear a three-piece suit and I came in and, I, and, and if I came in and I wasn't wearing that, then I wasn't giving my best to God and God was not pleased with me. He goes, man, I left all that junk behind. He goes, man, and now I come here. He goes, man, I'm allowed to wear jeans and I'm allowed to wear, you know, a V-neck shirt and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, it's great. It's fantastic. And, and, and it's probably good that you recognize that some of that was legalistic and legalism. He goes, but let me understand something. You've got to be very careful to think and all of a sudden be able to take your suit and replace it now with your V-neck shirt and your jeans. And now you think that this is the way that real spiritual people worship God. See, the problem with all of that, and I think you understand it, is God doesn't care about what you wear on the outside. He cares that you are clothed with the righteousness made possible by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Let me give you one more before we go. We are also free from the law of God as a means of salvation. I wrote that as carefully as I possibly can because I think it could be misleading. Let me repeat it one more time. We are also free from the law of God as a means of salvation. Anyone who lives a life believing that if you are somehow, you are somehow have to be good enough to be accepted by God in the way that we live is on an endless, Tim Keller says, is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. We understand that. 
what we have to understand is we are not bound to the law as a means of being saved. In other words, we don't have to keep it to a certain standard to be saved. Would you agree that's the essence of the gospel? Now, some take that too far. Here's what they say, and this is why I say that, that you can't, you have, you're free from the law of God as a means of salvation, but you are not free of the law of God as a means of living. Two completely different things there. So the means of living is it doesn't mean that, hey, we don't need the law anymore. It's not important. In fact, it's actually a wicked thing. Let's just live and let live and go on. This is, this is a, a, a false teaching called antinomianism. This is basically like live, eat, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If God's going to forgive us for everything we do, everything's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then who cares how we ultimately live? That's a false gospel as well. See, what they don't understand, see, this is why people want to put all these rules and regulations up and all these traditions. They want to put them up because they don't think a person is going to obey God unless they have the fear of hell being constantly thrown at them. But what they misunderstand is the, the, the miracle of salvation is that when God saves you, he changes your heart and you now want to follow God. So here's what's interesting. The false teachers were saying you need to follow the Ten Commandments. Paul was saying you need to follow the Ten Commandments. You know what the difference was? They were two completely different things. They were saying, the false teachers, you need to follow the commandments in order to be saved. Paul was saying you need to follow the commandments because you have been saved. And this is how you want to honor God because of his gracious saving of you and me. Now, here's what will happen. We're, we, we don't have the freedom to go out and sin. Exact, as I said before, we have the freedom to actually obey. Romans 6.18 says this, that you have been freed from sin. We have now become slaves to righteousness. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul will say, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, Peter wrote, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but, uh, but, but us being bondservants of God. So people often ask, they say, well, you know, don't talk about the law. Don't bring up the law. It's evil. It's wrong. The, the law is not evil. It's precious. Go and listen to the way that David talks about it in Psalm 119. It's precious. It's, it's sweeter than honey, even the honeycomb. So how are we to understand that? Well, we have to understand the purpose of the law. My brother, um, I know we've got some issues of cancer in our church, and so I don't mean this to be overly sensitive for that. Uh, please don't take it that way. Uh, but my brother, uh, years ago, he was a, a tremendous athlete. Um, he and I had nothing in common. And uh, he, he really was. He had ran for, run for Team USA in the World Championships and the duathlon in Italy. Uh, really a great athlete, runner, biker, not so great swimmer. But he did a bunch of things like that. Well, he, on our weekends together, would want to go and do a race. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, let's do that. And so he'd want to go and do a triathlon. So we'd do a triathlon. And before you think that I'm bragging, he came in like third. I came in like somewhere down here. And, um, and uh, you know, at least I finished. And so here's what we're happening. We were sitting in a hotel room one day. And as I looked over my brother, I go, hey, buddy, look like you're getting a little pooch there, my friend, like I'm one to, tell, you know, to say. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I don't know what the deal is, bro. He goes, it's the strangest thing. He goes, I'm running like crazy. I'm getting ready for this Boston Marathon, been getting ready for these sprint tries. And, and he goes, I don't know what's going on. He goes, Monday, I'm going to go into the doctor, see kind of what's going on. So that Monday after the race, now he came in third out of like 450 people. 
And, uh, and so we went into the, to, to the doctor and he calls me up and he says, hey bro, he goes, uh, I may have some bad news. I said, what is that? And he goes, well, they even think it's, they, they think it might be some type of hepatitis that I have. And he goes, or they think it's cancer. So we're just trying to figure out which one that it is. He goes, the hepatitis, we think it's treatable. He goes, cancer obviously could be treatable, but we just gotta see what's going on. So they find out, they end up doing kind of an x-ray and they see these clouds in him in, in the x-ray. And in those clouds, they go, hey, bro, we're, we're concerned about this. We need to do an MRI. So they do an MRI, and they find out, and they come back, and they go, bro, you are riddled with cancer. You are riddled with cancer. And uh, he was in stage four cancer at the time. And, uh, but here's what I want you to note with that. Let me just say this, because uh, my, my dear brother is here who is in stage four cancer. And the truth of the matter is, brother, we believe 100% that God could rescue him and could save him, and he can heal us from stage four cancer like this. He just says the word, and it's done, and he's healed. But my, my God did not decide to be able to rescue my brother, and I want to let you know, he's not regretting it one moment. You understand that. So let me make sure that we clarify that. But with that said, they kept coming back with these scans, this thing called a PET scan which would basically kind of illuminate wherever the cancer was. And they would come back and each time they would say, the cancer's here, the cancer's here, the cancer's there. Then a little while back later, they would give another PET scan to be able to see whether it's reduced inside of his body. Here's the point. The law is like the PET scan. It tells us what the problem is. It tells us that we have cancer. It tells us that we are sick. But that PET scan didn't cure my brother. No matter how many images he got, no matter how many times within it. Why? Because the purpose is not for, for to, to, to heal him and to fix the problem. It's only to diagnose and to be able to expose the problem. That's what the law is for. Paul said that I would not have known that I was a sinner had it not been for the law. The law was used to show that you and I could not hold up to the standard of God, that we were not pure, that we were not clean for him. The way to solve the solution to what the law demonstrates is the problem, is the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who heals. He's the one who strips away all of that mess of our sin and our penalty. And it's all through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what some of our problems are? We understand that and we know that, but you're still living by law. Your daily life is based at the end of the day of how good you did and how bad you did based on those things. But God doesn't love you anymore because you did everything right and he doesn't love you any less because you did everything wrong. He accepts you because he has accepted you based on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Should we use the law? Yeah, it's a good standard to be able to go back, understand how we are to live our life before God. But we live by grace through faith alone, knowing that we could never meet that standard, not even now, and that Jesus Christ paid that price for us. For some of you, you just today need to be free. You just need to be free. No matter how many sermons you hear, you're still just trying to work out Working out your salvation is you actually trying to be good enough for God to be able to receive you. It's not the way to live. You are going back into, into not freedom, but you are going back into slavery. Call out to him for mercy. Save my soul, Jesus. Press into him. Let him change you and transform you as you pour into him and you love on him. That's what he'll do for you. Be free. Be free. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the time that we've had together. And God, right now, I just pray for freedom in this place. That this will be a congregation, Mercy Hill, that is unified and that we will be unified, Lord, through the same gospel and through the same freedoms. We will walk as people who have been freed from the law, but now we walk unto you in grace and mercy. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Right now, if there are any who are not born again, not saved, I pray they'll call out for mercy and grace to you. Quit letting them try to work for their salvation. Call out for mercy. For those who are truly born again, but yet keep falling back into the law to compare how they're doing, instead, Lord, let them live by grace. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Just a few moments, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. A few moments of response.